Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. For decades, Lori Wiaki has worked to secure tribal water rights, break down barriers to voting, and support Native candidates seeking elected office. She's a longtime community organizer who believes in harnessing the power of Native voices to bring about meaningful change. We'll hear from Wiaki today about her career in building strength and resilience for Native issues. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Legislation was introduced this year that would restore the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians' right to hunt, fish, and gather on their ancestral lands. As Brian Bull of KLCC reports, the bill passed a major hurdle this week. The U.S. House approved H.R. 2839, penned by Oregon Representative Val Hoyle. During a hearing Monday, she spoke to the need to counter a 1980 consent decree that made the Siletz tribe lose their subsistence rights in exchange for getting their status and land restored. It is an unjust and racist policy that should have never happened. Dee Pigsley is the Siletz tribal chair. She's hopeful the Senate will approve the measure and send it to President Biden's desk. It would be the next best thing that's happened to us is restoration, actually. It'll make many, many tribal members happy, and it'll be a real Christmas present if we can get it through the Senate before they adjourn this year. The Salettes are one of two federally recognized tribes in the entire U.S. that don't have these rights. The other is the Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde, also in Oregon. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull. New research by a Native women's group examines the impact on Indigenous people in South Dakota after the rollback of abortion services. C.J. Keene with South Dakota Public Broadcasting has more. The Native American Women's Health Education Center, based in Lake Andes, South Dakota, published their post-Roe report with a focus on tribal lands. The report calls the removal of abortion protections an attack on tribal health care and sovereignty. It found financial implications and access to rural health care options to be two of the biggest concerns facing Native abortion seekers post-Roe. Sharon Astoyer, CEO of the group, says nothing good comes from removing access. Whenever you take services away from people, the solution is to return them and to increase the services, the health services that are, you know, should be available to us. The group in the state of South Dakota that is hurting the most are uh, indigenous women. The findings echo another recent study from the Guttmacher Institute that found the overturn of Roe v. Wade disproportionately affected indigenous communities. Astoyer says native peoples across the country should think of health care as a human right rather than a privilege. We gave up so much so that we could have health care and it is our right, our human right, our treaty right. So when uh, they try to diminish our services, they're violating our human rights. So just remember that. Don't ever be afraid to speak out and to seek health care services of any nature. Though the decision has been made on Roe, she reminds women that the battle over abortion is not yet over. There are funds out there. There are uh, women who are willing and groups that are willing to help you uh, access those services. For National Native News, I'm CJ Keene in Rapid City. 
The Grand Gateway Hotel in Rapid City, South Dakota has published an apology on its social media channels. It's in line with a court-ordered settlement. In it, ownership formally apologizes for comments made by former owner Connie Urey regarding the treatment of Native Americans at the establishment. Last year, the hotel and associated businesses became the center of months-long protests and boycotts by Native people and caused a social media storm. This after Yuri attempted to ban Native people from the business. Along with the apology, the terms of the settlement have also mandated Yuri to step away from decision-making roles within the business for at least four years. The ownership group still faces two lawsuits connected to the matter. First from the Native Advocacy Network Indian Collective and another from a Wisconsin family. Both lawsuits allege the business denied Native people service solely based on their race. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. More tribes are using drones from Cayuse Native Solutions to economically collect data for disaster response, aerial inspections, and more. More about drone services available at CayuseNativeSolutions.com who support this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Lori Wiaki has a lengthy career focusing on civic engagement, voting rights, and community organizing on Native issues. Wiaki's early work as a community organizer started with protecting sacred land from a road project in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She and her fellow organizers lost that battle, but she was awarded the Cultural Preservation Award by the New Mexico Indian Affairs Department. That work led to more positions on state task forces. She eventually worked her way to directing the Native American Voters Alliance Education Project. There she worked on issues affecting Native communities. Lori Wiaki joins us as this month's Native in the Spotlight to talk about her work and her accomplishments. And we welcome our listeners to this conversation. Do you know Lori Wiaki or someone else in your community that's passionate about civic engagement? What is the role community organizing plays in progress for Native people? Join our conversation with Lori Wiaki by calling 1-800-996-2848. She's here in our Albuquerque studio. Lori Wiaki, Project Coordinator for the New Mexico Tribal Water Advisory Council. She's also the former Executive Director for the Native American Voters Alliance Education Project and a former community organizer. She is Diné, Cochiti, and Zuni Pueblo. Lori, it is a pleasure to have you here in the studio. Welcome to Native America Calling. Thank you so much. It's good to see you. You and I go back a lot of years, as do our families. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so it's. Um, I'm glad to be here and pleased about the opportunity to, to chat with you once again. It's been a while. It has been too long. Yeah. Too long. Well, let's talk first about what you're doing now at the New Mexico Tribal Water Advisory Council. What are the water issues facing tribes here? So here in New Mexico, um, 
there's there's been a lot of effort to really look at how climate change will impact New Mexico's water. And, um, you know, New Mexico is very arid anyways, right? And so there's a lot of concern about how climate change is going to affect, um, you know, the soils, wildfires, just even our cultural, um, a lot of the way um, water is a, a integral and important part of our cultural protections. And so with that, what it's really meant is that we need tribes to kind of um, learn and get more involved, I guess, uh, on water management issues and pay attention a little bit more to what the state's doing because a lot of times tribes have been more focused on their own adjudication, which is their water rights, mm-hmm. uh, paper water. And, um, you know, with climate change really impacting New Mexico's water, we could have all these paper water rights and not really have access or infrastructure to get actual water. And so there's a lot of concern about that. So that's the work I've been doing these past few years. Uh, We created through the Indian Affairs Department a tribal water work group. And so the work I'm doing now is kind of a, I guess, a part two um, in terms of getting as many of the tribal communities and, you know, it ranges from, like, the tribal historic preservation officers, the natural resource departments, to utility companies. And so there's a lot of expertise that exists within Indian country, but there's also a lot of um, issues around capacity. And we just don't have as many people to manage some of these systems or some of these processes because it's, it's pretty vast when you mm-hmm. talk about water. Well, you mentioned the different tribal communities here in New Mexico. Of course, there's the Pueblos. We've got uh, a large number of Navajo people, a big portion of the Navajo Reservation, as well as Apache tribes. Is it tough to get consensus among these different tribes, which in, in, in some cases might have competing interests with regard to water? That's true. And I don't think there's um, we're not really at a point where we're really fighting about um, consensus, but it's more along the lines of like, how are we as native communities, tribal communities, sovereign entities, right, really going to make sure that we have the water available for our future generations? And so I think a lot of the tribes come, and they're in different watersheds a lot of times. Sometimes when they're in the same area, um, you know, some tribes like have like two rivers or two areas where they can access water a little bit easier. Um, And those tribes have been a little bit more on the forefront of um, dealing with their adjudications and that sort of thing. But, you know, with all the federal dollars from the the federal government these past few years, um, you what we're finding is that a lot of states and a lot of tribes are really kind of having a hard time accessing Mm -hmm. a lot of that money for various reasons. And so that's kind of more the end of what I've been working on. Well, I think of some of the Pueblos that run along the Rio Grande, and as the, the water just filters down through the different Pueblos, you know, it, it, right. there's probably not as much when you get down here towards Albuquerque as there is up north, northern Pueblos. So that's got to create challenges, too. Yeah, and including there's a, a recent court case. It's the Sackett versus EPA. But basically, it's saying that kind of those ephemeral rivers, meaning those like 
I don't know if they're temporary, but they don't run all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, those sorts of rivers are not uh, protected under the Clean Water Act anymore. And like, if you look at New Mexico, that's like ninety-five <laughs> percent of New Mexico. You know, our waters run, and then they don't, right, right. at different points of time. And right. you know, but you're finding within the communities themselves, like. Um, you know, water is not coming as far off the mountains as it used to, right? Mm-hmm. We don't keep the snow as long as we used to. And so these are the sorts of um, topic areas that I've been, you know, just the state of New Mexico is doing different webinars and that sort of thing and just trying to make sure that our tribal communities are um, aware and begin to participate a little bit more to kind of understand like it's not just you know, somebody saying, no, you can't have it, but it's like, it's really not there. And collectively, mm-hmm. we need to deal with that. Lori, how old were you when you started doing community organizing work, as well as just, just advocacy and just being so passionate about Native issues? <laughs> um, I probably started very young. Um, but I think um, as a profession, it was probably in my early 20s mm-hmm. that I actually um, found a job at a place called the Tonantzin Land Institute. And, um, you know, it was a place where there was Native and Chicano people working on land, water, and human rights issues. And that's kind of where I first started to hear and learn more about community organizing as a occupation or I guess a career Mm. opportunity and for me that was um, a real shocking and important gift I feel like it was a gift from the holy beings because I I had never heard of a community organizer Mm -hmm. and so you know this place was like yeah we do community organizing and I was just kind of real suspicious at first (laughs) after a while I was like oh, my God, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be. So it's probably my early 20s. And you come from a long history uh, of people who've been very active uh, politically and socially and culturally. I I knew both of your parents, wonderful people. Mm -hmm. I I know some of your your relatives on on your Navajo side. Uh, Our grandmothers went to to school together many, many years ago. Um, So this is in your blood, Lori. Yeah, I I do think so. Um, Even my grandparents, um, like their vision and version of the organizing and activism was like, you know, they heard on the radio there were some young people marching across the reservation. So my grandma would be like, I got to make a big stew and we're going to take it. So they would make (laughs) this big stew and fry bread and then they'd drive across and look for these young people and, you know, feed them and... There's a lot of um, effort, and even my aunts and uncles, like I remember they'd sit around on a Saturday morning and talk about, you know, just various issues. And the one I most early remember was um, the March and Gallup. I was probably like six years old, and um, it was the Emmett Garcia had just been nominated to the UNM Board of Regents, and there was so much alcohol um per capita, per square mile in Gallup. And so a lot of my family were like, we're going to march against Gallup and all this sort of stuff. And so I remember I got to sit on my grandpa's shoulders and we marched. And someplace there was a photo of it in the newspaper. But 
um, I guess we left the march early, which I didn't know. <laughs> but they were worried about the violence, police violence and that sort of thing. So the grandparents took the grandkids <laughs> and we moved on out. Well, what's so fascinating about that? So there, there was just the 50-year anniversary of of the loss of, of Larry Casus right. and some of those other related events that occurred during that era. So, yeah, just some, some fascinating history there that you've been involved in. And, and, and you talk about activism, and I think sometimes we hear the word activism, and, and you use the term community organizing, and those are different concepts, aren't they? I, I say they are, and in the work that I did, we were taught there was a difference, and um, the main difference is that community organizing is a lot more um, concerned and involved with uh, question of, questions of power. So um, you would really look and like who has the power, who doesn't have power, what kind of power, you know, you do your power analysis and then kind of develop your strategies in which to implement change. And it's also really involved with like, we need to be making these analysis and changes based on what's really going to make a difference for the local community. So you're really looking for changes in like how the community is able to live their lives in a way that is fair and, you know, just, right? And so whereas activism, um, you know, the way I was schooled is is that you really could be for or against a variety of issues mm-hmm. and you weren't necessarily accountable to those various communities. Okay. Lori, we're going to have to take a short break, but uh, we're going to talk more about that as well as so much of your other work, uh, your work with regard to to voting rights and other issues. Give us a call, folks. 1-800-99-NATIVE. Talk to Lori Wiaki. At this year's United Nations Convention on Climate Change, indigenous activists around the globe spoke to world leaders about taking action to fight and respond to climate change. We'll hear from Native voices who attended COP28 in Dubai about their takeaway from this year's gathering. That's on the next Native America Calling. Yat A. Our elders are sacred and deserve the best. Check in on them and make sure they have the health care coverage they need. For more information, visit healthcare.gov slash coverage or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Ahieha. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We are speaking with longtime Native voting rights advocate and community organizer Lori Wiaki. We're talking with her about her work and accomplishments, but we also want to hear from you. Is voting rights an issue in your community? Are you a community organizer? Join this conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. We have Lori here in our Albuquerque studio. Talk to her, 1-800-99-NATIVE. Ask her a question. And also a reminder, you can listen back to this show and past shows on all major podcast platforms, such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And you can listen to other types of Native programming by downloading the NV1 app onto your smart device. 
Lori, before we went to break, you were comparing and contrasting these two concepts, community organizing versus activism. And what I take away is that there is a, a level of accountability to the community with regard to community activism that might not necessarily be present in activism. And I feel like activism nowadays, it's like it's very easy for somebody to say, hey, I'm an activist. And I see it so much in social media and, um, you know, people putting hashtags out there. And what's your thought on that? I mean, when you look at what the work you've done as a community organizer and, and this whole idea of being accountable to the community, I mean, that's that's a deeper level. That's a, that's a real commitment there that you've really got to put a lot of time and energy into. Yeah, I... I um... I mean, first of all, I, I'm delighted by as many people's efforts at um, making change and, you know, acknowledging the injustices that we face. But I do think that um, sometimes if you're unaware of the power dynamics that you're and, and taking a realistic look at those issues and um, it's easy to sort of get lost in like, well, this is the right thing to do or, you know, not the right thing to do. And I, I do think it's helpful to try to remember who you're accountable to, whether that's your own membership base or your community or, you know, there's, there's various levels of that accountability mm-hmm. that I think are important um, in terms of then how do you deliberate and push forward for solutions, right? Because I think sometimes... Um, you know, it's easy to hold out for, like, the ultimate altruistic solution if nobody's really going to punch on you and (laughs) put pressure on you and say, hey, wait a second, you know, we deserve some of those finances or we deserve some of that water, you know, those sorts of issues. And so I think, um, for me, that's a real important distinction that I, I really would encourage a lot of our younger activists to begin to think a little bit more deeply about, um, you know, what is power and what is it to be powerless, right? Because a lot of times um, we think that, oh, we have, we're empowered to say this, that, and the other, or we feel very, like, powerless and we're going to just scream and yell from the mountaintops. Um, but really, like, what are those components of power, right? What are those components of being powerless that make us, you know, um, th- there's various ways that it, it, it affects our communities. Lori, how do you define power from a Native context? So that's an interesting question. Um, so I think from a traditional people's perspective, I- I've been scolded personally, right, where mm-hmm. they say that's not how we talk about power um, because in the traditional way, they'll tell you, you know, get up early, you know, face the sun, say your prayers, and then be strong, you know, make sure you're there, you're helpful. And, you know, they have a lot of ways that they encourage you. Don't be lazy and don't just sit around and, you know, <laughs> shoegaze or whatever it is. You know, they'll um, kind of encourage you to be strong, to be honest, to have integrity in your everyday living. And I think that's really important um, for us to continue to keep those perspectives of power from a traditional standpoint. Um, but when you look at the Western context, right, we would say power is knowledge or education. It's money. Mm-hmm. You know, it's cold, hard cash. You know, it's influence. It's all these different things. And, um, you know, when I've been scolded on that, 
I have to kind of push back and say, well, you know, what you say is true, that we should not be thinking and talking about power in the way of the Western world, Mm -hmm. but we do need to know what it is. Because the facts are is that many of our young people have experienced being powerless. And, you know, when you go in and you ask like a high school age group of folks, you know, what is it to be, what is power, right? And they kind of mumble, don't really have a good sense of that. But when you ask them, well, what is it to be powerless? I've seen some groups able to rattle off that list a lot more easier. Right. And it's like we're it's concerning. Broke. Yeah, it it's really is concerning. Yeah. It is. But then you kind of push back. Well, what's the opposite of broke? Well, it's wealthy. What's the opposite of no education? It's being educated. Right. Mm-hmm. So they start to look at like, what is it to be an empowered person? And just to kind of put the final tap on that is to say, you know, we also used to push people on like, well, and what were you taught about politics growing up, right? And a lot of that is such a wide range of experiences. So some groups are like, it's the most important thing, and that protects <laughs> sovereignty. And then you have the other half, oh, they're a bunch of crooks, and I never vote. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, let's talk about you know your yeah. work with, with voting and the Native American Voter Alliance Education Project that you worked with very closely for a number of years. What was the initial goal of the Voter Alliance? Well, that started um, after we did our sacred site work. Um, so we did a lot of work uh, to protect the Petroglyph National Monument from road desecration. And when we were involved in that effort, you know, we did our power analysis. We thought we were so smart. We had ourselves winning within a year. And it was like 14, 15 years later, we were still <laughs> battling. But what we learned through that process was, um, you know, we would go to city council and we would pack city hall with like 100, 150 people and we'd all have our signs and our testimony and all this sort of stuff. And then there'd be like five developers in our opposition and they would get up and like, yeah, we support this bill. <laughs> Sit down and we'd be like oh, pouring geez. our hearts out, you know, and we would lose the votes. We would, in the beginning, we would lose like seven to two, I think was where we started. And so it just, as we kept losing and kept going to different arenas, whether that was the transportation board or wherever we found ourselves, we kept losing those votes. And that's where we started to like, hey, you know, we need some better elected officials, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where that really started. And so um, we did a lot of various campaigns. um, Yeah, just... I, we got a lot more involved in the electoral end of things. And you recruited Native people to run for office as well. Yeah, yeah, we we started to, yeah, we just started to do it all. Like and, and sometimes there wasn't like a Native person, but we would find the person who really did believe in justice as, you know, as hard as we could push them. Um, and like we won one year of the, I think it was a, a bond or a measure finance, whatever, but the whole city of Albuquerque voted on it, and we won by a 55 to 45% vote margin. And we were shocked because we never win. <laughs> We'd always go to bed the night before, like slightly ahead, and then we wake up and we lost. Oh, jeez. Yeah, but then uh, that particular one we won. 
And we also were able to help get a mayor elected who was the only candidate that was opposed to those roads going through the uh, petroglyphs. Anyways, all of that is to say, after we lost that, that particular battle, um, we decided that what we needed to do was to um, rest. So we all went our separate ways and did our whatever for a couple of years. But it was the urban Indian leadership here in Albuquerque that was like, hey, that vote thing you guys did, can you do it again? We need this. <laughs> <laughs> they were take, they were paying attention and they yeah. took notice. Yeah. Well, I've also heard that a lot of the folks that are really active now with regard to community organizing and just some of the the models that have been implemented were developed as part of that work that you folks did with the petroglyphs. Yeah, the, I was surprised to see how many different um, groups and efforts were spawned from that initial work. Um there's a lot of great organizers here in Albuquerque, and there mm-hmm. some are native, some are non-native. Like, but like there was just a lot of different work that um, kind of grew from that work, and I really think it was the gift from, you know, putting our hearts and our minds and our, you know, full effort to try to protect that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I gotta ask you, Lori, so. Of course, the road went through. They extended Paseo mm-hmm. del Norte into the mm-hmm. west side of Albuquerque. And do you ever go down that road now after all these years? And if so, what do you, what do you say to yourself? I haven't gone down that road you never for a have. long time. Well, I I have here and there, um, but it's very few times that I've gone over that road. It's just so awful when you think about it, um, you know. But the truth is, if that fight were fought fairly. I think we would have won. We would have been able to sustain that victory. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was so much uh, unfairness in the battle that it was kind of (laughs) crazy. What was the unfairness? Just some of these these big dollar developers that just had a lot of political pull? They did. And like one that was, I think, kind of the the straw that broke the camel's back was um, we had, I had gotten a call from a reporter one night and she was like, so what's your position on Universe Road? And we were like, Universe, you mean Unzer? And she's like, no, Universe. And so I was shocked, and I kind of didn't feel good about it, and I was getting after my staff, you know, like, we've been going to all these meetings, and we don't know where the hell Universe is. Like, (laughs) you know, come on. And everybody was, we're all combing through our paperwork (laughs) and looking for this road. And the next day, we we immediately um, went to... Various. We went to the Park Service, the City Council. We went all over the place, and nobody had heard of Universe. And so that afternoon, what we found out was they were planning to just put down a road called Universe. Oh, and geez. they so they did, and we did a, a an action, a direct action, and several of us got arrested. Um, but that night when we were arrested, they just had like 14, 15 asphalt trucks just... Ready to go. Yep, ready to go okay. and put that road down. And Lori, for our listeners that, that might not be from New Mexico, <clears throat> might not be familiar with this issue, this goes back to the 1990s. Yes. And of course, uh, the Petroglyph Park with these ancient, ancient <clears throat> petroglyph drawings on rocks and mesas and cliff sides, uh, they were at risk. And um, so... Now, in retrospect, I mean, 
how do you think the park has the petroglyphs? Because some of them are still there. I mean, how, right. uh, what's been looking back now, reflecting back? It's been decades. How do, what, what do you think has been the impact culturally on on those historic and and so vitally important cultural landmarks? So, it's hard to say because just to be quite honest, like a lot of that information was really, and we treated it as such as that's really belongs to your certain clan or your certain tribe and you know however that worked out for each community um but when we knew the road was imminent and coming in like we basically alerted everybody and we did our last march to give homage to the petroglyphs and only recently have I been back there to do a a, we used to do tours of the area Mm -hmm. but it was to talk to a, a native um some native young people about the issue. And so it's the first time I've been back. It is very different. Um, they, I think th- through all the fights that we did, we tried to mitigate as much harm as we could. Um, but I think, um, you know, it's hard to say because that place was used by so many tribes in down to Mexico, throughout the whole region, for various things, you know, from peace to war to communications, you know, there was just a lot of different ways that area was utilized. And so I don't know. And being a woman was another issue. Like sometimes like in Pueblo world, like I'm not supposed to be necessary. I was never trained as like a medicine person. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of, we took that to heart and tried our best to be respectful through and through. But also it was very important that, hey, we're political fighters and we're organizers and we're going to do the best <laughs> that we can. So we're killing taxes and bonds. <laughs> I feel like you folks were, were years ahead of your time because imagine that fight now with social media and all of the other tools and so much more awareness for not just indigenous issues, but social justice issues in general as compared to what the climate was like in that era. And, um, but what's interesting, I mean, you, you're no longer, I mean, you got into social media there when it first emerged, but you told me a while back, you've, you've cut ties with social media. Why is that? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, um, yeah, when I was doing the Native American Voters Alliance work, I had to be on social media. I personally, like, I love it when it's fun and funny. Like, mm-hmm. I just love to, when you see, like, an old friend on the, you know, Facebook or whatever, like, it's fun to tease and, you know, go back and forth. But a lot of it, I just started to hear a level of, um, what's the word? Um, that There was just a level of self-righteousness that I just couldn't stomach anymore. I'm like, hey, man, we're all, like, humans and barely hanging in there (laughs) on a Wednesday (laughs) or whatever. You know, like, um, I just, yeah, some of it was just hard. And I think my feelings were really just kind of pulled to the final nth degree anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, it was a lot of work. I I actually managed... um, a C3, a C4, and a PAC, which is like basically three. So these are nonprofits. Three-headed. So one is the like a regular nonprofit. That's the three. Yeah. And then the four is like a social, they call it a social welfare, which allows you to do unlimited lobbying, but it also gives you the gateway and ticket into 
creating a pack, which okay. would be like a super pack and those sorts of things. And like we were not big tobacco, so we didn't have the big money, but um, it was the tools that we were interested in and how to implement change. Okay. And so. So do you feel better not being on social media? I think, um, I guess so, but I miss like the flyers. Like there's, you know, which powwow is happening here <laughs> right, and like right. which craft fair is going on there. Like all that sort of stuff. I'm just like not in the mix. And also the news of like, you know, the community news every now and then, like a good friend of mine just recently passed and I didn't even know about it until somebody remembered to text me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, my face isn't in the mix anymore. So we're going to talk more with Lori Wiaki after this next break. If you know Lori, if you're here in New Mexico, maybe you remember the petroglyph struggle back in the 1990s when the Paseo del Norte extension was pushed forward by developers, the city of Albuquerque. Give us a call. Tell us what you remember about those days. 1-800-99-NATIVE. Native American-made gifts at Ho-Chunk Inc.'s Sweetgrass Trading Co. include food, beauty, and wellness items from across Turtle Island. Christmas delivery available for orders placed by December 18th at SweetgrassTradingCo.com. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, LLP, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for over 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce, and there is still time to join our conversation with Lori Wiaki. Just call 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We'll get your comments and your questions on the air. And Lori, talking about your work with the Native American Voter Alliance Education Project and just the importance of voting, and earlier you talked about you know what it means to have power and Right now, what, how do you feel with regard to just the level of, of conflict that we have in this country right now, the level of folks that are just disillusioned by the mm -hmm. political process? I hear people all the time, hey, what's the point of voting? Mm -hmm. Why does it matter? Mm -hmm. what, what do you say to people that, that, that tell you that or, or voice those opinions? Um, if you don't vote, you're definitely giving your voice away and your decision-making power away to somebody else. And so that's kind of first things first. And, um, you know, I, I, um, my feelings about the way the country is just undergoing some duress and stress, I'm really dismayed by it. Like I was raised in the day where you have the guts to tell the truth, tell the <laughs> truth, you know, <laughs> face the facts and, right. you know, and like you did your best to like, you know, just tell the truth and face the facts and, you know, deal with the consequences. And that sort of, you know, I remember being scolded by older white men, like, you know, you don't have the reality of this, that, and the other. And, you know, so it was really important for me to um, participate in wheel and deal in reality. Um, and so what's happening is just so shocking, just like there's so much goofiness so much <laughs> lying and mm -hmm. and just you know that's not what you just saw you know all this sort of stuff so that's really um dismaying problematic it's very painful in a lot of ways 
But in terms of like, um, should we give up on our system? Like, I firmly do not believe. And, you know, I've been told like, oh, voting is a colonized action or whatever. You know, we go into those. But I also think our ancestors were very clear about dealing with reality. And um, I think if they saw as a easy, peaceful solution was to vote and to understand what you were voting about, mm-hmm. I think a lot of them would have said, whatever, let, let's get in there and vote. Let's protect right. our, our future. Right. Well, Lori, we've got a couple of callers on the line. First up is Marion, who's listening here in Albuquerque, New Mexico on KUNM. Hello, Marion. Welcome to the show. Good morning. It's so wonderful to hear Lori on the air. I'm so glad she's out there again helping us and um, having influence on the Native American society in the urban area and back on the res and uh, places we still consider holy that are neither. And um, I really want to compliment her. I've known her forever. Her mother is my relative. I want to remind her that as a Diné woman, we have a lot of power as women. Mm. And um, don't forget that. Mm. Uh, I support everything you do. Um, you you are just so wonderful, and I've been considering running for city council because mm. I've run into the same issues, of course. Mm. Uh, we're trying to open a new domestic violence shelter here in Albuquerque for Native women. Mm-hmm. I've been doing that for eight years, so I have those scars, you know, which are turning into stars, as <laughs> they say, and I'm not giving up. Uh, I'm an elder now, you know, I'll be 70 my next birthday, but I have so much energy and uh, knowledge now, and I carry myself very well as an elder, and uh, she will one day herself, but right now she's got a lot of power, and I just want to uh, let her know, let let you know, Lori, that I'll pray for you, and there is a lot of strength and power in that. And that when we talk about things, issues at home, we influence mm-hmm. our children to be voters, even if they're not going to the electoral mm-hmm. polls. Appreciate you know, right it. In the yeah. House yeah. Marion, th- thank so, you so much. And I'm sorry to cut you short, but we've got a lot of other callers on the line. But uh, yeah, take, a, take a moment to yeah, comment. Thank uh, you. It's good to hear from you. And I will give you a call. <laughs> there we go. Soon. Yeah. Let's hear from Mario now, who's listening in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hello, Mario. Hey, uh, thanks for the call. Um, yeah, I just want to um, really say good words about Lori, um, Lori Yaki. Um, first training as the as an organizer really got from Lori um, during the Native American Voters Election Project days. Uh-huh. Um, uh, very much at the very forefront. Um, part of a, the leadership team that leads the Protect Greater Chaco Coalition or was part of the team. Um, a lot of the, the training that we received directly from Lori we implemented. And even my my position as chapter official on the Navajo Nation is because uh, really she laid out just how important it is to vote and to be a part of the political process. Hey, that's, you know, a lot of that undergirded and supported by a lot of the interactions with Lori. So very important. And, you know, one of the 
the people I, I hold in high esteem and a lot of organizing work we're doing and always trying to live up to the standards that she set. And mm-hmm. so that's how influential Lori is. And so I just want to let the people know um, yeah. these things are, are pretty powerful and, and, and moves and changes things. So thank you. Oh, yeah, Mario. It's good to hear from you. Let's hear from Chris now, listening on KUNM here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hello, Chris. Hi. I uh, just wanted to say that uh, my wife, Angela Robbins, was uh, uh, on the city council at the time when Lori and, and, and all those other folks were organizing, and she was a big supporter of Lori's and trying to stop the road through the petroglyph. And I know she never wanted to drive across that road after the, <laughs> they lost, and I, I haven't either. So, but anyway, she, but she was a really, really big supporter, and I know you guys, you came to her funeral, Lori yes. and, and her, your brother Sonny. So, I just wanted to say that was a really important time for my wife. She was very, very involved in that. So, she anyway, was, thank you. Thank you. She was tough. She. We were worried about her in the beginning because she just comes across as like a very nice person Mm -hmm. and um, very intellectual and smart. And sometimes we're like, oh, no, what if those developers just like, you know, run her over or whatever? But she stood firm. We had a lot of really great allies, and she was one of our two votes that voted with us um, against the roads to the petroglyphs. And, um, you know, we just had like a lot of great non-Indian allies as well, the League of Women Voters. Like, I remember they'd raise their hands, and one time there was a guy, he was like, quit talking about sacred sites. You know, we don't, you know, we don't want to talk about it that way. It's a safety issue, blah, blah, blah. And because we would go to the candidate forums and ask, what is your position on the desecration of sacred sites? And so this particular meeting Sonny asked the question, and the guy cut him off. And then all of a sudden, this little old lady, she raised her hand, and the man was just so happy to get off the topic. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am, he turns to her, and she's like, I really would like to hear your answer to that young man's question. (laughs) 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 So you could see them starting to like, who's who in this room? So it was fun. Well, the caller mentions your brother, Sonny. You mentioned Sonny. He's, uh, he's been with you all yeah. along. He's yeah. also a community organizer and just worked tirelessly on the petroglyphs. And, and for those of our listeners who, who might not know your brother, uh, tell us a little bit more about your family. Oh, Sonny's hilarious. Like we, one thing I will say is another outcome of our work there was the political humor was just funny. Like we would really, like we'd have suffered these great losses and, you know, disappointments and whatever. But the other half of that was we really had a good time. Like we just would have a lot of laughter and jokes and the political humor, I I feel, was very fun and funny. And Sunny was definitely a big part of that. (laughs) And so... Yeah, so he's doing good. Um, he's a grandpa now. Is he? And yeah, he's just like, you can see his granddaughter's just like, that's my grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> well, me and Sonny used to hang around a lot back in the day, and he's just, he's a master of that old school Indian humor. Yeah. Right? He's yeah. just got it, like, just yeah. every time, and just always coming <laughs> up with those one liners. Let's take another call. We've got Manu, who is listening online in San Jose, California. Hello, Manu. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, loud and clear. Oh, okay. Um, 
Well, first of all, uh, I run uh, with volunteers a community radio station, KCXU, and we broadcast uh, Native One shows. And I just happened to listen. I do listen, <laughs> but I'm calling you because of, of Lori's statement about voting. And here in San Jose, um, there's a lot of New Mexican people, Native people, all from the Southwest who live in San Jose. Um, so anyway, this, your show is being aired uh, to a million plus online radio. But anyway, for Lori telling me or telling us about voting, I agree with her totally. Um, it's about if, which I tell my friends, I say, if you don't vote, then don't complain. <laughs> so, but another thing that Lori, well, it made me think about, it's not just voting, but Lori mentioned it. Lori, thank you. You have to know what you're voting, what you're voting. You have to be educated. And with all the misinformation that we're getting, you have to dig in even deeper to to uh, know what you're voting for. And, you know, you ask your friend, who, who, who are you voting for? You know, mm -hmm. city council. You don't know the city council. You, don't, you try to get to okay. know them, but... All right, Manu, I'm sorry. We're going to have to kind of wrap it up here because we're running low on time. So uh, thank you so much for calling in today and giving a shout-out to Lori. And, Lori, as, as we wind down the show, what do you look towards with the future with regard to to Native people, with regard to, to some of the issues that are at the forefront right now? And, and are you optimistic? I actually am quite optimistic. If you listen to our traditional people, our elders, um, there really still remains a pathway for us to move forward. But I do want to encourage a lot of my younger up-and-coming um, activists, organizers, to really dig deep and to face those realities and deal with the uncles or aunties who annoy you because they're saying an opposite idea or whatever, like really try to listen and figure out what is that pathway forward. You know, just in terms of uh, the last thing I want to kind of put forward with regards to um, voting and kind of our perspective on things is that way back in the 90s, somebody did a, a study of high school-aged students, uh, their civics classes. And the question was, what were they taught about politics, right? And what they found was that wealthy communities, their young people were learning that politics was their opportunity. You know, middle-class communities were taught that politics was their civic duty, right? You just get out there and do your job. And then poor low-income communities were either taught nothing or that it's very boring, mm. right? And if you're taught that that is boring, why would you try to implement change? Like, why would you really go out there and interview a city councilor or a county commissioner or, you know, decide to run for office if you think this stuff is boring and they're all crooked? Well, it might be true, 
but that doesn't mean we shouldn't get in there and wrestle for the best that we can come up with, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm saying wrestle in this context of like <laughs> nonviolence, folks. Let's be nonviolent. Figuratively, yeah. Yeah. figuratively. <laughs> well, Lori, do you? I think sometimes about. Um, like, like one thing that really comes across loud and clear with you is that you understand the significance of compromise mm-hmm. and, and you've had to do compromises throughout mm-hmm. your career. And sometimes I feel like there's kind of this pushback, like, oh, we should never compromise, no compromise, mm-hmm. like you're selling out kind of thing. And how do you reflect on that in terms of compromise and that just professionally and also personally in your own life, mm-hmm. just as we wrap down the show, we've got about a minute to go. Okay. Yeah. I mean, to me, compromise is not a dirty word. It is how we got to be where we are with what we have. If our ancestors did not compromise and deal with things on the reality, we might not have our sovereignty, right? You know, African-American communities, if they did not compromise along the way, we wouldn't be where we are today. And so I think, you know, it's, it is tough to compromise. And I do understand how awful that can feel at times, but it also requires a maturity that I think the movement needs. The, if we're really serious about justice, then we really do need to be thinking about things. But I also understand the other tension of that is that climate change is real, and we've been pretending that, you know, oh, this doesn't exist. I understand the, the fervor and the angst of our young people, and I think they have every right to be. But I also would encourage them, like, Yes, be concerned and hurt and angry, but also be serious, be mature, and look for those solutions. And if you get a piece of that solution, take it. And then you, that doesn't mean you end. That does not mean you end there. It means you get up the next day and you start right back on that next mm-hmm. piece. Lori, I'm just so grateful that you came into the studio today and shared all these wonderful stories and, and, and your experience. Please keep inspiring us, okay? <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, take care of yourself. Lori Wiaki here in our Albuquerque studio on Native America Calling. We have now reached the end of our hour, and uh, we're going to wrap the show up. But please join us again tomorrow as we get Native perspectives on the United Nations Climate Change Conference. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce. It's the holiday and everyone looks forward to friends and family and sharing in the joy of the season. So remember to celebrate responsibly. The holidays often include enjoying a drink or two, so it's crucial to remember moderation is vital. Here's a tip to help you celebrate responsibly. Set a limit. Decide in advance how many drinks you'll have and stick to it. You can also alternate alcoholic beverages with water or other non-alcoholic options. Happy holidays. Support by Diageo and the Multicultural Consortium for Responsible Drinking. More at drinkiq.com. Our elders are sacred and deserve the best. Check in with them and make sure they have health care coverage they need. For more information, visit healthcare.gov slash coverage or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation. 
and native nonprofit media organizations. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.